Welcome to the Where Two or Three podcast, Christian thinkers finding their place at the table of communication scholarship. Before we begin, the views and discussions of this podcast do not necessarily reflect agreement with the views of Martin Luther College. That's my cue to pray. Hey, John. Hi. Let's <laughs> have our traditional prayer. The eyes of all wait upon thee, O Lord, and thou givest them their food at the proper time. Thou openest thine hand and satisfies the desires of every living thing. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Good to be with you again, John. This is our good to reunion be... podcast, I suppose. Yeah, good to be with you again, too. This is our uh, a virtual a virtual production now with mm-hmm. uh, the way things have been. It's uh, currently December 29th. Um, it's snowing outside in the suburbs of Minneapolis. I don't know about you down in New Ulm, but... Yeah, it's really quite pretty outside. So, yeah, it's been an awful long time, John. I, there's no explanation, no excuses, but it's been months and months since we've done this. Yes. But uh, glad to be with you again, even though we're socially distanced. We have yes. a Zoom meeting open, and so that's kind of nice to get to look into each other's faces, I suppose. Yeah. Um, I do, I do, maybe this is something that will, will come up during our discussion today, but I do find that being able to have a conversation with someone where you do see their face, even if it is virtual, does help bridge the gap a little bit between say just a phone call and especially via just communicating via text is, it just adds so much more to it. So. Absolutely. A colleague of mine sent me an email this morning. He'd been reading something, a book called Cyber Theology or something like that. And uh, the author has made a comparison to communicating like on social media and so on. It's just almost like playing a video game. There's just something so uh, fabricated and false and not like being in this in uh, physical presence with people. But I, I do agree that just having a face in front of you does a whole lot to... Uh, it's not the same. It's not the same as being in the same place, but it does a whole lot to make the communication real and authentic and so on. So, yeah. Yeah, that resonates with me a lot because, I mean, especially with text messages, sometimes I'm very, for me, a lot of times I will pause and uh, carefully craft the words that I'm writing or typing in an email or a text message and try to make sure that I'm getting across what I need to get across. But it does feel kind of arbitrary in that it does kind of like a video game. It's very, that is very strange. Yeah. What was that $10 word you said though? Cybertronic, cyber. Cyber theology. I think that might cy- be the name of the book he was reading. Cyber but, theology. Uh, I was remembering you and I, the last time we talked, just to kind of set this up a little bit, we just got talking about how, how far technology might come to sort of mimicking physical presence. Right. I mean, can yeah. you, can you do touch somehow and smell and so on? Can you do a holograph and would that be the same as being in the same place? And uh, as I thought about that after a conversation, I thought there's, there's no duplicating physical presence, right? If you were, so I thought, imagine being in love with somebody. Would that be good enough for you <laughs> to have a hologram? Yeah. It just, it just wouldn't. It just, it just flat out wouldn't be, um, it, it'll always be second best, right? To be connected digi- digitally. So. Yeah, it's very... Um... It would be very hard. You'd have to be 
dreaming or something it would, and it would still be second rate. So it's yeah, absolutely, it, you can explore it with stories or media. I think we've talked in the past maybe about, you know, certain movies or TV shows, which kind of explore this idea of what's it like to, um, have these kinds of virtual communication as a right. replacement, um, intentional or not for, for like real presence with someone. But, um, I would agree. I think always yeah. will always be second best. I've yet to be convinced. So, yeah. so this actually might be a unplanned segue to our topic. I, I don't know if we've talked about social information processing theory on this podcast. Have we? Maybe a little yeah, bit. I, I'd have to go back to the record okay. books. So real go briefly, check the minutes. to repeat, uh, SIP theory by Joe Walther is the idea that, well, it began with studying pen pals in World War II and uh, people sending love, love letters. And so the question was, if you only have text, um, can these be worthwhile relationships or not? And based on love letters in World War II, the answer is yes. Um, it's called SIP theory, which is the clever acronym says you're getting a person in smaller SIPs, right? You're getting – so it's a slower process. But his idea is that relationships, relationships can become very, very significant. It just takes a little longer. And the segue to our topic today is what Joe Walther was – mostly talking about was the kind of attention you pay is different. So you're attending, in that case, only to the words, and you're not attending to a physical presence. Um, and so that's our topic today, though. It is what kind of attention we're paying to people, and in a single word, we're talking about listening. So one of the core concepts of communication, one of the core sets of skills that we really haven't gotten to yet. And so that's our topic today. Um, any response to that? Does that ring a bell, that social information processing theory that just says you attend to the words only? It really is valid. It's just different. But that yeah, kind of I, keeps us from being too negative on technology, I suppose. Yeah, it certainly rings bells uh, from, I, can't, I think we covered it a little bit in IPC, or am I remembering incorrectly? Well, it, it might it have, may come have come up, up when up. I give students a chance to explore theories beyond interpersonal. Sometimes students will wander into this area. Yeah, I think we may have stumbled across it there, um, but for sure in um, in grad school it came up, uh, albeit briefly. Yeah. I think I preached I, a, a morning chapel at our college not long ago, just thinking about, well, that is how the Word of God comes to us. It, it is by God's own choosing that He reaches us in words alone, words on a page. And so to think that that's somehow invalid, we kind of cut against the whole core of what we, what we believe. And so we're told to attend yeah. to the words very carefully. Yeah. But so, yeah, listening is the big picture. Yeah. And I think this will be, we have enough content for perhaps two episodes, which I think <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll find very easily. There's plenty, plenty to talk about and plenty to listen so. to. Two could become three very easily. So we'll Absolutely. just see. Absolutely. At least two. Yeah. So um, let me put a devotional thought out there. And this mostly comes with a story. But as I, I search the scriptures for where does this listening thing come across in scripture, um, my, I, I gravitated toward the Proverbs as one ex answer. The Proverbs just has a lot to say about how we listen to people and what a wise person does, what a foolish person does in uh, this context. So Proverbs eighteen thirteen says, to answer before listening, that is folly and shame. So to answer before listening, that is folly and shame. So my story is uh, when I got the call, when I graduated from seminary, the call to 
to uh, be an exploratory mission pastor, it was quite overwhelming. It's just not how I saw myself. I'd done some knocking on doors, you know, and never thought it went especially well. I don't know if that's in my skill set necessarily. And so I remember taking a nap that afternoon, a little bit of escapist behavior, you know, and then that evening I went to a party and it was uh, a party of seven or eight friends who had all received their first calls into the pastoral ministry. So obviously very on fire and very excited. And I walked in the door and uh, as I walked in, I saw that four or five of my friends had gathered around this girl that uh, a friend of a friend, her name was Michelle. And I I already knew that she was an atheist or agnostic, and that was her position. And as I walked in the door of the, the party, I saw, you know, four or five of my friends kind of ganging up on her with arguments for God's existence and all that kind of stuff, just, you know, hitting her left and right with why she ought to be believing and not so skeptical. So I, I think I made a decision that four on one was probably enough. <laughs> so I uh, didn't engage with that conversation. Later on that evening, never forget this, she ended up sitting by herself on the couch and uh, the party kind of moved to the kitchen, you know, as happens. And so I sat down beside her and I said something like, this is like 30 years ago, 32 years ago, but I said something like, I bet you didn't get a chance to say what you thought, did you? And she just kind of laughed. Are you kidding? You know. <laughs> and uh, I said, "So tell me." And uh, she just proceeded to pour out her her story of pain and suffering, and just the classic thing. The world is such an awful place. I just can't reconcile that with your ideas of a God of love. This is what eighty percent of people seem to have as their problem with Christianity. It's a, it's personal. That means it's really not philosophical. It's really not intellectual. But she just poured out her own story, too, of just how awful life can be. And I remember letting her go on that, and people left me alone, kind of left us alone, letting her go for quite some time, at least 20, 30 minutes. And at the end of all that, I said something to her I'd never thought of to say before. But uh, just from listening to her, I said, you know, that must be hard. And she said, you know, oh, and I said, it must be hard to live in the world that is everything you're saying it is and then have no God besides and uh, she said, yeah, it is. She said, it's really hard. And I, again, never prepared for this, never thought of this in advance, but it just came to me to say, could I show you a side of God that maybe you haven't seen before? Or, and I talked about God on the cross, you know, God not indifferent to our suffering, but taking the problem of evil and making it his own problem. Um, a God of a profound and inexpressible love on the cross, revealed on the cross. And and what she said to me, you know, again, you don't forget this stuff. She said, you know, when you put it that way, it makes sense. <laughs> and and I thought, holy cow, of all the days to have the best witnessing conversation of my life, when in the back of my mind or in front of my mind is just the anxiety over my new call into the ministry. Am I going to start a church from scratch, you know? Um, but I just thought, thanks, God. I mean, thank you. You know, it that uh, from that day on, I kind of began to develop my own witnessing strategy that fits in my sweet spot. And it's just it's just really centered around listening to people. It's just really centered around saying, I'm going to understand this as well as I possibly can. I'm going to understand this. And and uh, so anyway, um, devotional thoughts slash story, there it is. To answer before listening, that is folly and shame. There's just a lot of wisdom to that as, you know, as I think about it. Yeah, that's a really powerful story. I mean, I'm thinking about, I'm sure she remembers the conversation she had with, I don't know, 32, what did you say, 32 years, six sure, months, yeah, and five days ago? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So 
uh, I'm I'm sure she would remember the story of your interaction with her way more than the story of you know four people telling her things that she's probably already heard before. Just getting, I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I think yeah, so. How, I it seems. I know I would remember that conversation much more if I felt unheard. That's usually yeah. a almost like a barrier to entry to have an actual conversation about something. Definitely. But I think oftentimes gets overlooked. We think we spend so much time coming up with our side of the argument or presenting facts and, and figuring out what can we do to best persuade this person to align with my point of view on whatever topic it is. And oftentimes I think the missing component is, is not one of preparation for, uh, you know, an attack of of another person's position or a defense of of your own position on on some thing. It's it's a uh, it's an ignorance towards what the other person's position actually is, and so you end up missing the target, or they end up missing yours, and, and you just end up talking past each other. Yeah, I'm getting ahead of myself. I I often say to students, our words are weak when we speak from a shallow understanding of what's in front of us. And that'll be kind of a major theme, I think, for however many episodes this is. It's just So So I was talking to um, Eric Recker, is the Synod Chairman of Evangelism, and we worked on a project on, it's called um, Let's Go. It's a series of video-supported lessons on, on evangelism. And what he told me is exactly what you said. He, he said he'd looked around at all the different programs from different church bodies out there about how to train in witnessing. And he said not a single one he came across put any kind of spotlight on listening to people. And so that's that's a huge gap, wouldn't you agree, to not give any thought to, boy, i got to understand this person, you know, what this really yeah. means to them, whatever their objections happen to be. Yeah, I think... Listening is just as important as being able to um, give an answer for the reason that you hope of the hope yeah. that you have. It, being able to listen is a is a key part of that. Definitely, and absolutely. I can think of, you know, how many times throughout my education, um, Christian education, that is, where, you know, the discussion around evolution was. Here are all the facts that stack up against, you know, an evolutionary point of view or like, here's how you have a conversation, like, here's how you, uh, you know, do that battle. And only a few times where it was like, look, the battleground is, is elsewhere. It's more along, like, on your faith. And then once you're in that arena, it becomes much more difficult. I think the way that you put it was very interesting. It was, um, can I show you a side, what, how did you say, a side of God that you haven't seen before? And I think that's the interesting thing about, you know, having a discussion about your faith is that it's, it's less about like a telling. It's more about like, a, like I want to show you what it looks like from the inside. And it's really, really hard to explain what that's like without being able to like witness it firsthand. Yeah. Like to, to know like the love the father has for you to not, you have to, you almost have to experience it and it can't be something that's just told. It has to be shown or or revealed from the inside in a way. So that was a pivotal moment for me that day of all days to think, how am I going to, you know, find my voice and find my way as far as being an apologist and a a missionary and listening was the way in and, and really quite dramatically. So so I confirmed for myself this morning, my, my, the question I've had is, who are the great scholars 
out there of listening that you and I read or come across. And it just confirmed my impression that there really aren't any. There really is no big name out there that has led the charge in this particular area of scholarship. In fact, it's uh, confirmed, confirmed for myself this morning that it really is neglected. Um, and I think it's because, or one study I said, why is this an underdeveloped area of scholarship? And it's because so many things are happening at once. It seems it's really quite complicated. We're perceiving people, we're, we're interpreting, um, we're building, we're searching through our own biases and assumptions as we interpret people. We're, we're doing message formation at the very same time. You know, active listening is not just passively taking in sounds, but there's this whole mental process happening. And, and so it ends up being enormously complicated. And so you can look high and low for who are the scholars that have really pulled this thing apart, you know, with genuine, rigorous research. And they're kind of missing. So our podcast is about Christians having their place at the communication table, and we realize that this is an area where we really have been thinking about something for centuries that is that uh, not everybody has, you know. Yeah, I think it's. Um, I, I'm trying to remember a specific theory that was more or less focused on the listening side of things, and I can't really think of one that that we're, it's oftentimes you're focused on the you know, the rhetoric or the persuasion or the, the point of view or the way a message is being given. But very often, like very few times is there much attention given to how the message is received. And I think, I mean, one of the few that few that I that came to mind for me was the Shannon Weaver's theory of communication, which was more of the, more or less this transactional, as you were saying, it was this message formation and you're sending the message and it's a, this very mechanical sort of, almost like a flowchart that you could see a message going one way, being received on the other end. And then, you know, the, the, the two sides are inverted and the, now the sender is the receiver and vice versa. And it was very transactional and not really, not really the lens that I view most communication through to be, to be frank. Um, yeah, I don't but it that. is one of the few that has, um, you know, at least it acknowledged that the receiving process was, uh, was important um, whether it was a machine that was receiving the message in, in his theory or, or whether it was a person. But um, yeah, it'll be interesting. We've got a, a couple of different scholars that have ideas about this that we'll go through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Shannon Weaver, I mean, you remember that communication scholarship has these seven traditions and one of them is cybernetic. It's a kind of a full-on scientific theory of communication, but it really is... I don't know how to describe it. It's it's about the medium and the channel and the interference that occurs in that channel and and um, but it just seems to be an almost dehumanizing look at communication that just misses how complex the process is. It isn't just I send a message to you, you receive it and you send a message back. Um, it's way way more complex than that. Uh, so. Are you hearing my phone ring? Sorry if you are. I did. Yeah, messages oh. coming in Sweetheart, hot. I'm so. on a podcast right now. I'm sorry I can't talk to you. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> Love you. Bye. So, <laughs> um, yeah. So, so Shannon Weaver's model it, just really it has its purposes, but it really I think it maybe has paved the way in certain communication technologies out there. There's social value there, but for you and I, probably. Not yeah, so much, as cool you know. as as cool as the word cybernetic is, <laughs> exactly. It does it does it kind cool of. Word. Um, I mean, there are certain uses in terms of like, 
especially if you're taking a sort of quantitative view towards something or if you're trying to measure something with right. and, and get generalizations about, you know, how populations behave and things like that. It, it can be, can be useful. Um, I think a lot of where the Christian uh, view and perspective comes in is less about the, you know, measuring valences and all of these, you know, technical sort of uh, putting numbers to things that are really more uh, right. qualitative. So, so, so there's just a lot going on besides just taking turns, right? There's a lot going on yeah. besides that. And yep. the way real listening is, it's it's uh, beyond the physiological hearing, you know, with the eardrums wiggling and stuff. It's it's really the the attention and the mental processing that that uh, that distinguishes those two: hearing versus listening. Um, yeah, and again, it's not about disregarding that sort of scientific process it's more no, about look this is this is um our our focus is going to be directed elsewhere especially when we're taking a uh the the sort of uh christian part sorry i'm losing my words the the christian seat at the table of communication scholarship mm-hmm. is going to have a more qualitative i think view. you could yeah i'm sorry did i cut you off i think you could argue that listen no, i just had a train wreck of a sentence though that absolutely <laughs> wonderful. it's it's too ironic to be interrupting you yeah <laughs> yeah i think there's a little bit of a delay in the zoom call and so that I, oh okay that's that's my excuse Let's blame it on that yeah no i'm not telling is... it because i'm not a quantitative person right now, but... interrupting no, is bad because interrupting says my words matter more than yours right now and no i don't mean that i think i just you're getting excited about stuff so uh, what i was saying was uh you could argue that listening is at the core of the Old Testament, the whole Old Testament message, you know. I'm sure we'll get into it at some point in these episodes, listening in the life of Jesus, which is profound. But even the Old Testament, you could argue that the whole point of the Old Testament is whether God's people listen or don't listen, and all their fortunes turn on that. Um, one way that comes across really, really interesting is when you think about the days when Israel first had kings, and how would you tell that story? of Israel's, this incredible change in Israel's uh, whole experience was the days of the kings. And you might expect to tell that story with the birth narrative of Saul or the birth narrative of David, but instead it's charged with several chapters on the birth story of Samuel. And just the fact that you start the story there says something profound, that all Israel's fortunes will always depend on whether they hear or do not hear God's prophet, you know. And so the verses where, where you have Isaiah talking about the people be ever hearing but never perceiving, right there is that distinction between physiologically listening or physiologically hearing. That, so the event is happening, but whether you really hear or not um, goes deep to the core of our whole spiritual life is can we or can we not hear things that maybe aren't convenient or are not what we would happen to think of on our own. So, yeah, we're, we're ahead of the game here in terms of putting a spotlight on this set of processes and all of the spiritual implications that there are to it. Yeah. Um, so I guess we've, we've got a list here uh, that we came up beforehand uh, with a few scholars that maybe their theories aren't specifically about, you know, they're not titled listening um, mm-hmm. or, or something like that, but, but they do sort of highlight that aspect of communication in a way that other uh, theories have not. Um, so the first one we have here is uh, Martin Buber. 
And he was a Jewish scholar around World War II, I believe. And he, so, yeah, he survived World War II. Um, I think he was even in a concentration camp. One of one of many um, interesting figures that went on to do great things. So, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, what I remember about his theory, um, I usually, especially being so a little farther removed now from when I was in in grad school, uh, the parts I remember of theories are much more distilled into central ideas and not as nuanced. Um, but the thing that always sticks with me about Martin Buber is his uh, um, I thou. So the, it's like a relationship that you have with another person, and and when you when you see when you're talking to someone, um, there are two different types of relate. He, he basically broke it down into two different types of relationships that you can have with them. You can have an it sort of relationship where they're kind of dehumanized. They're more of this thing that I'm talking to, much like you'd relate to like a lamp. And then there's another time uh, when you when you truly see them and how what what was the phrase? They they become a person in front of your very eyes, and you you you're hearing what they're saying. You understand where they're coming from. There's a bit of empathy involved, and uh, there transpires a new way of of being able to to interact with them. That's what that's what Buber reminds me of. Sure, yeah. People become something more than just an object in your social world. And so you see past just their attributes, separate attributes. You see past the role they happen to play in your life, like your professor or your barber, whatever. And yeah, exactly. A person becomes a person before your very eyes. And so, yeah, we're just searching out who are the thinkers who have maybe not spotlighted listening, but have it baked in, you know, and that have things to say about Again, the kind of attention we pay. So I agree. That's a good place to start. Um, I'll mention, I don't know that much about him, so I hesitant, I'm hesitant to go here. But Emmanuel Levinas is another sort of philosopher of the ethics of communication. And here's a little quote I just came across the other day. He said, I am not free to ignore the meaningful world into which the face of the other has introduced me. And so Levinas is just famous for this focus on the human face and that it's, it's very philosophical and very metaphysical, but it's all about a, the human face in which I share a space is laying some, some profound ethical obligations on me as far as how I respond to that face. So again, it's just who out there has spent their genius on just attending um, on the power of one soul fully really attending in real time to the human face of another. So um, I can't advocate for him. I can't say he's great or whatever. I just know he's another person on that list of philosophers that have that have made their mark in the field. And he was early 1900s? I mean, looking that sounds right. Now. Yeah, that yeah sounds born right. 1906. So Okay. Um, so yeah, that seems very... So as Buber, and they, they do seem yeah, similar yeah, they, to me. They yeah. do have their kind of echoing similar sentiments in that when when you're confronting a person there's more than just this there is a qualitative aspect to it that you mm -hmm. can't just distill down into numbers and you know weighted averages of how many times people are talking to one another exactly there's there's a certain perspective that's important to consider when when you bring those things together yeah i, I would think of the the concept of verstehen 
German for understanding, that again, studying people is like studying nothing else in the universe. And so these uh, scholars and philosophers are trying to put words on things that are, that are sort of ineffable. You know, what's unique about, again, what's unique about a human face as opposed to anything else in the created universe. So, yeah. What else you got, John? And response to that so, or other? Th- yeah, I think I'm going to go on a limb here and start this one off with kind of like a situation or a little story um, our next, uh, of, of our next um, thinker in this yeah, area, cool. if you That's will. Great. So the one that I remember from, from his literature was, uh, I think it was actually a date. And it was a guy and a girl sitting across from each other at a table and they're engrossed in deep conversation and in so much so that, you know, their nonverbals even are kind of mirroring each other and they're in sync in a way. And uh, that's the that's kind of the situation where you, you don't do that with, you know, inanimate objects, right? There is something, um, and especially being face to face with someone in person, you can get this, uh, you're in the zone of communication, I would say, um, and you're, you're in sync with him. And the, so the man's name is, uh, Daniel Goleman. He has this, um, a few books out on emotional intelligence, social intelligence, working with emotional intelligence. And he, he covers this idea that, um, there are two different, uh, levels to the brain. There's the high road and the low road, he calls it. So the high road, and I might mix these up, but the high road is the one that you're conscious of. So um, you're thinking about, you know, the story that you're talking about, or you're listening and like relating to this, something that someone else is saying. That's the, you know, the, the few things that we're doing that are conscious in a conversation. Right. And, and then the low road. is being very cognitive. So I'm thinking yeah. about what, what my next turn while you're talking and very, very, yeah, yeah, very conscious. Go ahead. Keep going. That's great. And then, yes. And so, um, accentuating that. And I think this is where we're getting, uh, and we can relate this to the other two is that there is a low road and that would be our subconscious in action during this conversation. And this is where you will naturally find yourself mirroring, mirroring another person's posture, or uh, you will, you will get those, somewhat ineffable um, aspects of communication that you don't get elsewhere when you're, when you're not in person. And we can discuss like how much face-to-face does something like Zoom or Skype allow, but there's this, this low subconscious um, pathways in our brain that do a lot of the work for us that accent communication with other people. Um, in, in unique ways that are worth exploring. Yeah, correct me. I, so I'm trying to recall that information too. It's like that other bridge is, I don't know how many times faster as far as the, the way we're reacting to each other. Um, micro expressions on our faces are showing up at this, almost the same time. And yep. hemispheres, hemispheres of the brain or areas of the brain are just firing almost simultaneously. It's like one of those Facts like bumblebees shouldn't be able to fly in marathon or shouldn't be able to run marathons close to two hours. That, that something's happening on the level of uh, of that the brain science picks up on and MRI machines records that it just doesn't seem possible. This yeah. getting in sync is a phenomenon that uh, 
quite mysterious actually the breathing starts to match up and so yeah keep going is there yeah it seems very it's uh, i don't know if this is a specific example that he used but i think of it as like the high road is and low road is kind of like an iceberg where the high road is mm-hmm. this small part that you see and then underneath there's this overwhelming amount of processing that's going on that we're not even aware of yeah. that helps us align these things together and conversation and listening uh play a big part in that so it absolutely does yeah i, I remember the what what sticks with me a lot of it fades from my memory too but what sticks with me is goldman's discovery when does this happen when does this happen between two people and number one when we like each other that if we don't like each other that's not going to happen but but then the second thing is the attention paying so here's the you know here's the connection to our episode here is if we're not paying attention to people i mean truly attending then it's just we don't get, get to experience this and uh, I always find that if I ever kind of have the blues, I think one of the one of the things I've learned from that is that it's maybe been too long since I've experienced that kind of really incredible connection just in conversation with people. So, yeah, he's very good. He's on the list of those that have thought about the implications of whether we pay attention to people or how well we do. Absolutely. And I think, I mean, a lot of the different uh, stories and um analogies that he brings up have been more or less more influential in my uh communication journey than than other people he's worth looking up outside of just the idea of listening and paying attention to people as well the other ideas about you know how we're processing things or how i mean even getting down to the mechanics and neuroscience of how we form memory and how this all relates to this idea of a high road and a low road is is very interesting so Mm -hmm. i would say he's worth you know, making a trip to the library if it's open or or even going on Amazon and finding it. I mean, I, I, I think I found him through your class with IPC. I think I did a report uh, oh, serendipitously yeah. on him and, and ended up writing a paper and then um, was uh, found myself with three more books on my shelf. So. <laughs> was that emotional intelligence or was it this social intelligence piece? Because both are so really, really fascinating. Think it was social intelligence, it was, but okay. it might have been the emotional one. I'm again; it's been a a hot minute since I've <laughs> since I've dived into those books. But um, no, that's all right. Yeah, yeah. Either, it was one of the. It was one of those two, and I think the other, the third one is. I think I said it before. Working with emotional intelligence, um, which I don't know. I don't recall if I've read. Okay. The, the list of books to read is always oh, getting bigger, and the amount of time that I have uh, stays <laughs> the same. So maybe yeah, I'll bump um, it up the list again. So I'll add a name, and that's Carl Rogers. Um, I always say Fred Rogers is the well, Carl Rogers is the father of American psychology, and Fred Rogers is the father of everybody else. But so Carl Rogers has a. It's probably just the tip of the iceberg as far as who's thought about listening. I think if we, you and I knew more about the counseling profession or psychology, we'd realize there's this whole, probably a whole world there we could be thinking about. But Carl Rogers, I'm sure, tops that list of, you know, his, his focus on unconditional high regard has says something about how we attend to people, not just, you know, the behaviors themselves, but uh, the, the the person we bring to that, so to speak. But I think, uh, you know, when it comes to what what Carl Rogers has said about controversy and how to communicate in conflict is probably belongs in our list, you know. Um, 
if I can talk to somebody and I'm able to say, here's what you and I both care about and able to find that common ground, that, you know, is another place that implies listening deeply to people. I'm able to say we both care about this, or we both care about that in whatever conflict we're having. But then even more that that peace and conflict where he would advocate me telling you what I think you're trying to say to me. So we have conflict about whatever it might be, about worship styles or who knows what it is. Um, then I'm able to say, here's what I think you're trying to say to me. And I, and I can put, express neutrally in a way that you will, you will agree with. You'll say, that's exactly what I'm trying to say. You know, so again, just trying to tease out where, what are the thinkers and what are the people that have contributed to communication in some way that have helped, uh, helped our understanding of this issue. If that makes any sense. Yeah, it does. I think I saw something recently where it was, um, I think it might've been more satire. Maybe it was an, a meme or something, but it was this idea that, um, that you were, you were sort of echoing, which was that you relay back the information that you're receiving as a way of indicating that you understand and that there's, um, uh, that you've kind of like error checking to make sure that you, you got it right. Um, which also helps get you in sync, if you will. Sure. Um, but I think it was, it, yeah, it might've been a joke, which was the, sometimes it can be taken as like you hijacking the conversation if you do it incorrectly. And I think that might be something that happens more when it's not face to face, when you're not in, in, like proximity to someone where it can, you can say something relatable or repeat back what you've heard in a way that seems, uh, disingenuous or that you're like making it about yourself. So that was an interesting, um, maybe there's a fine line there with that. And I'm sure it can be, I've probably done it myself incorrectly many times where, you know, I I start, (laughs) I trying to relate or empathize with someone and I end up uh, going a little bit too far away from what that is, or I misjudge what they're, what they were saying mm. and, uh, can kind of fall or deteriorate the conversation a little bit. But I do find it helpful to when it works, especially, <laughs> uh, actually only when it works, I find it helpful to, um, to kind of relay back the information in that way. Sure. Well, you have, you and I have in mind a second episode on listening that we'll actually get into, into the weeds and the micro skills that include what you're saying. Um, yeah. So it'd be the how and how does it backfire maybe to paraphrase people's content back to them, you know? So that's good. That's really good. I thought you were about to tell a joke you told me while we were preparing this oh. episode. I thought oh, you were I was saving that. that for later. Um, I guess maybe we can, I'll, I'll find a way, I'll find a way <laughs> to make that into a segue. So the joke was, um, some some guy walks in and it was like starts talking about like a experience that he had with his um or like a conversation he had with his wife last night. He goes in and he's like, Hey guys, yeah, I was you know, minding my own business last night and then my wife goes, Are you even listening to me? And I was like, How what kind of way to start a conversation is that? Like <laughs> and I just it's kind of funny. Um Yeah, I've never heard that before. You you real you realize that, you know, he's been actively not listening to what's going on. And then he assumes that that's the beginning of the conversation, which is, you know, you can get a chuckle out of it, but I'm sure, uh, it is, uh, etched in truth in many situations in, you know, makes it more bittersweet when you put it that way. But that reminds um, me of that 
YouTube video or it's on YouTube. Uh, it's not about the nail. Remember that one? What is this one? It's a it's a guy. It's a man who's listening to a woman, and she's frustrated that he keeps trying to fix her. He's just not listening to her. He's, he keeps trying to give her advice and stuff. And and what he's trying to tell her, then the camera pulls back, and you see she's got a nail sticking out of her forehead. And it's not about the nail. He's trying to say, but sweetheart, you have a nail in your forehead. <laughs> not about the nail. So, anyways, if if your listeners, if our you listeners have never listen seen to me that, talk about the nail, yeah, search that. It's not about the nail. So, as far as um, ways we've already kind of touched on listening, but really haven't focused on it. I think everything we did on our gender episode kind of comes to mind. There's a lot there about how to listen to problem talk and so on, and what what each gender tends to be hoping for in that kind of conversation. So I also think we did an episode on biblical encouragement, which we defined um, leaning on a, a writer named Larry Crabb, who defined as speaking to the fear people are hiding inside, especially when we search for some feature of the gospel or the grace of God that we think especially speaks to the fear or shame or whatever it might be that someone's hiding inside. That, too, would be a place where we'd say, well, that really implies listening to people. That really applies that I don't think we've attended was that to the that. Conver- yeah, yeah sorry. Was that um, – that was the episode that we had that was sort of about culture, too, in some ways, right? Where it was um, – or am I thinking of something different? Where I actually don't remember. Uh, I, I remember there was a sort of dichotomy between um, honor and shame and then how some cultures experience that much more – differently than we do where we kind of think of things as a more judiciary sort of way where it's it's more like right or wrong and that there yeah. are different um kind of different axes that that we tend to focus on in, at least in our culture very good that's a Was good that case crap? in point yeah. i don't remember if those were conflated or not but uh yeah the idea that uh we may tend to lean toward um Guilt and forgiveness or guilt and justification, which is awesome. But to do that to uh, with cultural blinders on, that there are other ways that the Scripture communicates salvation, as you said, such as in terms of honor and shame. And that's a good case in point that another uh, another realm of listening really is how do you navigate culture. You, I think you need to be even... a keen observer and, and think and listen very insightfully or you, you'll kind of miss the point of a lot of the sources of cultural misattributions. So that's a good point. Listening Absolutely. to this role think, in cultural um, communication. I think there's even a book called The 3D Gospel, which kind of looks at three of these different aspects. Mm-hmm. And I do not think I've read it, but I've heard about it and it's on the list again. Yeah. <laughs> the list ever growing. Um, <laughs> but it's just again, showing... Not, not being confident what we've talked about or haven't done our podcast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, uh, oh, I'm squeaking. Um, so the, the, I think the part that, that comes into play with this podcast is, mm-hmm. uh, at least culturally or along along those dynamics, is that um, listening involves maybe uh, a type of relationship or a type of experience that we're not as comfortable with and to be cognizant that those – the things that people are feeling as a result of some stimulus might be different than our own mm-hmm. and to be aware of that and, and to um, be transparent about that as we're, as we're talking back. Yeah. I mean, I can see that being something, for example, if we were using uh, Roger's sort of method where someone's talking about something that happened to them. And then for us to, you know, if I'm, if I'm hearing what you're saying correctly, 
this, this X, Y, and Z, uh, you would maybe find that you were incorrect there. And then that would be a way to keep the conversation going in a more productive place than to, you know, have that error kind of embedded in the, in what you think the other person's experience is. And then to make assumptions and, and, um, additions on top of that, you kind of, you would end up going down the wrong path for some time. That is, that is definitely one of the axioms of Carl Rogers. And again, I'm not advocating Carl Rogers. He said some really flaky things in his life, especially about education, but, but, uh, the axiom that a lot of conflict breaks down just a failure to hear failure to understand or even to make the effort to understand something that may challenge our own, you know, our own uh, deeply held beliefs, but uh, that there are reasons to want to understand even in con- even if I know I'm right, um, based on God's word or whatever it might be, that there still are reasons. You know, so I, I had a chance to write the preface to a, a to a, probably a pretty controversial book called Quick to Listen, and uh, an NPH book in which um, several authors interviewed people on whatever homosexuality or science or um, Bible bashing. There were there were four areas. One was just atheists in general. But we just really felt like we're going to interview people and give them a chance to speak. And we we thought um, there really is a reason to know where they're coming from, even if we, from the start, have a position that's not going to change and we're confident in. There's a reason to really know in a rich, richly layered and textured way what these people actually are saying and what they actually think. And we can't be afraid of that, you know. And so it's a difficult book to read because it just gives the amount of space it gives to to point of view with which we profoundly disagree. But, but uh, you know, I wrote the preface just to kind of make the same argument. People say, let's say the church is full of hypocrites or whatever they might say. Well, we, we hopefully have an instinct that says there's more to that story. You know, people are not just reduced to these sentences. And our whole approach to apologetics is going to be just learn how to answer those questions. No, no, no. I mean, we need to... We need to develop our deep listening skills to really get what this what this is about for what this is about for the person we're talking to. And so, yeah, I want to know the story. I want to know the I want to know the story behind that objection. And otherwise, yeah, once again, my words are weak when I speak from a shallow grasp of the person in front of me. So, for sure, and that I mean that just goes right back to how we opened up this this episode, which was the the story of you at the the party and and seeing afterwards what what happens when you actually do open up that that door and and start to listen before you know continuing with the conversation and actually being able to understand what they're what they're saying for sure absolutely uh the i think the one more unless you have something else with with crab uh on biblical encouragement no, I think I was just, you know, as we're talking, I'm just letting my mind kind of run to theoretical areas. Um, if you have you studied phenomenology, is that familiar? That's one of the... Yeah, one of the seven... Yeah, it's a neglected tr- one or people yeah, know very little yeah. about it, but it's, it's so fascinating to me. So phenomenology is always asking the question, what is this like? So it's really trying to explore human experience at a really deep level. And it's a kind of scholarship that is conducted mostly in writing. So it's all, it's all about it's all about the task of capturing in words, in writing, uh, what something is like. I remember an example of, was what is it like to be a little boy playing a game with his mom, like he's two years old and the game is, I'm gonna get you, I'm gonna get you. You know, what is that like to be the child who 
runs away knowing she'll chase him and, you know, <laughs> knowing she'll always come after him. And 10 pages are just the most beautiful writing I'd ever seen, you know, or among the most beautiful things I'd ever read, just capturing that experience. And so I, th I think built into that is, again, there's a profound um, emphasis placed on just observing and listening and watching and hearing. And so we're not saying that no one out there in communication scholarship has knocked on this door, you know, but uh, it still is in spite of all of that as listening is baked into lots of theoretical areas, there still is a really a dearth of, of some champion scholar that's just made this his or her thing. So it's just fascinating that this would be, after all this time in the field, whatever 70 years old it is, still under underdeveloped, you know? Yeah, it's very interesting. Phenomenology, I remember just the, really trying to capture what an experience is like. Mm -hmm. Whatever the, whatever the experience may be, I don't re recall any even any specific theories about it. But just um, it's it's philosophers it's like very, Hegel and it's, people like that. Yeah, it's very Husserl. it's much more ethereal and 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 abstract in in terms right. of you know and, here's and, how this theory is constructed. Is it's much more about just really finding different ways to understand experiences in that case. Exactly, so, stripping away the normal categories and trying to kind of start over and actually capture the experience. It's, it's probably not the safest scholarship. I know Hegel is is the guy that Kierkegaard was constantly battling. So again, we're not advocating that area of scholarship. We're just asking the question, where where has a proper focus been put on just attending to, attending to other people? And that might be another place worth mentioning. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, go, go, John. Yeah. The last, I mean, the last person I have on the list here is uh, Sherry Turkle. Oh, of course. Who's yeah. a much more recent author. Uh, I believe the book is called Reclaiming Conversation. So mm -hmm. uh, she was not someone that came up in the traditional calm theory sort of world, uh, but was very, uh, she's a very prolific author on this idea that speaking towards technology and communication and how that's breaking down or reinforcing bad habits and, and what we can be doing to, to sort of change that and start to get back towards a more um, holistic type of communication. So her book, I'll just lay out the, the basic premise. She, she has three different parts to the book. She calls them the three chairs, which I believe is a reference to Tolstoy. I'm not sure. Which, yeah, that sounds right. Uh, Keep going. Um, don't know where in Tolstoy that it comes up. Uh, it's on the list of books to read, hopefully in English. My Russian is very rusty. But uh, there are three chairs. Um, and there's but you the first one is Russian, a, right? That, that's not a joke. Da is not a Boruski. Ocean Horosho. Ocean the Plocho. Uh, <laughs> sorry, I derailed you. Go back and placebo. No, it's, sorry, it's I great. You. Keep going. Uh, I don't even want to go back and listen to the words that I said because I don't even know if they. It's like yes, I speak Russian very well. <laughs> no, very not bad. <laughs> so what I think what I said, which I don't even know if it makes sense. My favorite phrase is Yanni Ruski. Which is, I'm not Russian, but by the time you ever say that, they already know you're not Russian. <laughs> if you're in Siberia, uh, let's say. Yanni my Ruski. favorite. Keep going, My John. favorite is, uh, <laughs> Yakak Tuchya. Yakak Tuchya. 
which means I am a rain cloud. <laughs> and if that's the literal translation. It's more of an idiom. That it's kind of like I'm blue, like I'm mm. sad. I mean, if you want a real segue, just look up the translations of Russian idioms. Cool. One of them is like when the cancer on the mountain sings is like their version of like when pigs fly. Oh. And I like when I first read it, I was like, when the cancer, when what? <laughs> but like cancer, like the crab, like when, when, so when the crab on the mountain starts singing, I guess is, Words that's their version by. of when, when they, yeah. Give me a t-shirt that says that and so, I will wear it more often is anyway, that what so, we're talking about? <laughs> Tolstoy. Tolstoy, yeah. Tolstoy, sorry. Uh, that was a fun little tangent. Anyway, uh, so the, the the three chairs, the first chair uh, from Tolstoy in this book, Reclaiming Conversation by Sherry Turkle, the first chair is one of solitude. And so she talks a lot about um, intro introvertedness, um, being able to be with your thoughts, the importance of it. Um, the second chair is one of one-on-one relationships where you and one other person are, you know, friend, a personal relationship, um, what's going on there. And the third one, third chair, is a group. So you and more than one other person. And how is our communication currently? She focused a lot on technology and current, present day and age um, dynamics in these three different categories. Um, but I think that's a great platform to kind of start off the conversation about like, uh, you know, how is listening impacted in our current ways of communicating, especially this last year has been very interesting um, in that, you know, we're not face to face and we're talking about the importance of it. Um, but due to a global pandemic, we're now, you know, recording a podcast, you know, hundreds of miles away. Right. So a little bit of irony there, but uh, maybe just accenting the importance to understand like how technology does influence the way that we listen to one another. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very good. So in broad strokes, I suppose the history of communication is one-to-one, including group, and then one-to-the-many through technology, radio, broadcasting, and so on, and now it's many-to-many. The many-to-the-many many, ends up being an awful lot of noise. And yeah, Sherry Turkle does write well about the erosion of certain really quite uh, costly human capabilities of just being physically present with people. I remember she writes about the boring bits. So in hyper-stimulation and hyper-connectivity, we don't have as much patience with like text on a page and not as much patience with just really listening to people talk because it's not always that fascinating necessarily. You got you to kind of work through and cut through and, and uh, what should I say, hang in there with things that are not necessarily exciting to get to, things that are profound. But if we have no patience for the boring bits, as she says, we're, we're missing an awful lot. So you're, you're right. She belongs in a list of people that are thinking or asking um, similar questions about human attending. So real good. I don't even know how long we're into the bro- into this podcast, John. I, I yeah, had a whole about- pot of coffee, and that kind of sets an arbitrary <laughs> limit to how long we can talk. Do, do you have a clock running? <laughs> Yeah, I do. I've got about 50 minutes here. So I think we've got a little bit of time and then we'll, okay. we'll kind of wrap it up okay. and then go I can, to... I can hang in there a little um, bit longer. Yeah. We'll, we'll have a, a whole 
another, how, what's the way to say that? A full another episode? Yeah, for sure. Easily. Uh, of, we haven't even of, gotten to the skills themselves yet, really. Yes, absolutely. Um, so I guess I'll just kind of uh, go over. I have a few thoughts about each of the chairs. Um, and the first one that came up to me was the the first chair, Solitude. I kind of made this one my home, uh, maybe a li- bit longer than I needed to. Um, but it was where I was comfortable, especially um, in undergrad and graduate school. I kind of, you know, wore the flag of introvertedness for a, for a while, for a while and made as kind of like a, as like a core of my identity. Um, and I realized that it didn't need to be as aggressively that, that way it was beneficial to be able to interact with other people more, um, casually and conversationally and just have, uh, just kind of like let go a little bit. Um, but one of the things that I do notice still is that, uh, in the, in the idea of solitude, I think a lot of people are more or less uncomfortable with their own thoughts. Not in that they like find themselves thinking uh, gross or dirty or terrible or horrifying things as like a, you know, not, not in that way, but more that like just the idea that I'm like by myself with my thoughts for a little bit mm-hmm. is kind of uh, daunting, I think, to some people. And I think I've, I've thought this in the past and I think I've written about it somewhere as well that I find a lot of people end up like putting something on TV or like listening to music or, or finding something else that they can do to kind of fill in the noise or the absence of noise that happens when you're, when you're by yourself. And so, I don't know, maybe that's worth exploring a little bit. I don't know your thoughts on that, but I think it's, I think it's interesting to see the need to have there always being like something on is very intriguing to me. Um, cause like I, most of the time when I drive somewhere, unless it's very long way away or I need to stay awake, I'm not really listening to anything. And I don't really, really think about listening to something unless I'm like falling asleep. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I remember I, curious I, your I, thoughts offended, on that. I offended my students when I quoted the study that said there are certain people of a certain age that would rather give themselves electrical shocks than, be alone with their thoughts. And I think a student felt like this was one of the, you know, constant barrages against millennials, you know, <laughs> complaining about them, which I don't tend to do. My, my daughter has disabused me of that, that you don't want to take on millennials because it's a lot of what you hear is just not fair and not true. The trophy thing, she says, I never got a participation trophy ever in my life. <laughs> so anyway, but um, there is something to that, not not being comfortable alone with my thoughts and and I just need some kind of stimuli all the time. I, th- I think Sherry Turkle's, one of her takes on that was that we need solitude to, this is just thinking psychologically, to develop a, a sense of self versus all their versions. You know, if we're hyper-connected, all their versions of self that are kind of fed to us, that a young person might, you know, search one that fits them and try them on for size. But to be truly alone with yourself, she thinks, is, is really integral integral to developing a healthy self-concept and self-awareness. So, yeah, I think there's a lot more you could explore there. So, But you have more. That's the one chair. Yeah. Well, I guess just to wrap up on that one, I think, um, yeah, the idea that it needs – it's like an essential component of – bump the mic, I think. Yeah, Uh, sorry about that. I think it's a – 
that it's an essential component to developing uh, a sense of who you are. Um, I mean, I see a lot of insecurity despite all of the, you know, stereotypes of, of millennials and, and younger generations. I think a lot of them are, um, they don't really have a sense of self as much, or there, there's a lot of insecurity or it's fraught with insecurity. Without um, any question. I don't, I, yeah, I don't think it's, I mean, I don't even think it's a, it, it might be a stereotype, but it's also because it's true. I mean, it's, it's prevalent enough that I think it's, it's not unworth talking about. So, well, I remember reading some really top shelf scholar that said, this is happening to all of us though. Maybe that'd be another way to push back is all of us have more difficulty tuning into a page of text. It's not just millennials that are experiencing that. Maybe maybe they're the canary in the coal mine where it's kind of showing up sort of first, yeah. but yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a perfectly valid thing too. Yeah. Then it's then it's more talking about, you know, how is the way that we're communicating uh, as a broad culture uh, detrimental to the way that we're formulating ideas about who we are and then that just kind of I can see that spiraling downwards if it doesn't take hold early. If you have no clear idea about who you are, what you want, your core values, those kinds of things, not not even that they need to be super conscious all the time, but just having like some sense of that, not having that can just spiral into a lot, whole, whole lot of problems and right. it shows up everywhere. And I think one reason that millennials might get a lot of flack is just because they're, they're a little louder. <laughs> Yeah. Or there might be more of them, and yeah. they're more they're, they appear more in the in the sample size in terms of like you know on Twitter or Facebook or I guess millennials have kind of moved off Facebook a little bit, or, but wherever wherever yeah. they find themselves, I think, and uh, you know to circle around yeah. to what is what is you know more significant probably without <laughs> without any question actually is the question of listening to God's word. You know, so I talk about people, no patience for what they consider the boring bits. I mean, there's nothing more dramatic than what the scriptures reveal about who God is and what his rescue mission through Christ was all about. There's just nothing more dramatic than that. But if people just lose their patience with orality, spoken word, lose their patience with words on a page, what they're losing patience with, most importantly, is is uh, how God communicates to us. So. Anyway, I've never made that connection before in my mind. Boring bits and how people are now tending to respond yeah. to to uh, worship and the reading of scripture, but it definitely seems for relevant. sure. Yeah, and that's actually kind of going towards the last idea that I had, okay, which good. was related to the to the third chair, which is that um, like groups of people. And so, what comes to my mind is not like a group of five people around a table as much as you know, listening to a lecture or a conference where one person's speaking to a whole swath of people and the other side being in a crowd that's listening to one person and then also thinking about how scripture can be brought into that conversation or into that chair. I don't really have anything on the, the middle chair. I think that's mostly covered by Goldman in my mind, mm -hmm. um, just the one-on-one -on -one aspects of conversation. But I think, yeah, as you said, scripture is all text. And it is presented to us as a as a group of people, and yeah, just exploring or viewing it through that lens was was interesting to me. I never had done it. 
I think before today even. So, And that's what I, I think I probably said earlier, but uh, the church having a stewardship of orality and text and physical presence, you know, because some would say, no, the church ought to keep, keep up with the time, so to speak, and ought to just give in to the fact that technology is here to stay. But I think that there's a certain argument to be made for holding out. And what we're talking about in this context is holding out for the notion and the capability of deep listening, deep reading, deep attention to text, deep listening, you know, and again, pushing through what may at first seem to be boring, that in, in actuality is more transformative than anything else in the world that is listening to to uh, what God has revealed about his son in the scripture. So um, hopefully that doesn't strike our millions of listeners as a sort of attack on or forced application. I think it goes right to the core of uh, what we care about. Yeah, and I think that's a great place to kind of wind up this conversation and also give us a little bit of a springboard for the next the next topic, which will be, I think, very closely related to that. So um, like bringing in the applications of, of scripture and, and listening all together. Sure. Okay. So yeah, let's, let's go there. Just a bit, bit of a preview to the next episode. Um, John, since you took IPC, I came across slash developed a little exercise for listening that sets up the more serious lab that we do in class. You know, we have a pretty serious activity that's pretty intense, but the little exercises, I have people um, join up in pairs and the person A is supposed to come up with a story that they can talk about for whatever, three or four minutes, you know, just as something to talk about and to, to supply fodder for the exercise. And person B, for the first 30 seconds, is supposed to look away and have a neutral face. So don't respond at all to what the person is saying. It's kind of it's hilarious because a lot of people can't do it. Those that are most empathic cannot not respond to what they're hearing without putting something on their face. You know, we all know what the neutral face looks like. So 30 seconds of that, then we pause and say, how'd that feel? And, you know, the answers are obvious. But what we're trying to do is to gradually layer on listening skills one at a time and do it meaningfully. So don't exaggerate. In the next round, we're going to let you use your face now. Next round, we'll let you mirror the expressions on the other person's face and be responsive and be present. And so pause after 30 seconds. How did that feel? So what, what difference did layering on that set of behaviors make in the conversation and so we'll go through like probably like seven eight rounds ultimately just layering things on meaningfully and so back channeling is next as you're talking i say mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and just different things i say vocal or do vocally that indicate that i'm present and next round um after we discuss what that brought to the exchange next round would be maybe paraphrasing content so capture the essence of what this person said in a very brief turn with your own words. So you're saying this. Oh, I got that. Yeah. Next one, reflective feeling. So you're excited about this. So whatever I see on your face, as far as uh, the relational messages that come across non-verbally, I give words to that. So you're really worried about this or whatever it might be. And then the last last uh, round is probably asking the open question. So you've taken all this in as a listener. Now, what are you dying to know? And put it in the form of a question that doesn't have the word you as a second word. Those tend to be closed questions, right? Do you, are you, will you, won't you? But a question that starts with why why or how or tell me or what. What were you thinking at that moment, you know? And so it's it's a fun exercise 
But uh, this, I, I say it now by way of introducing the next episode. We'll try to get into more of the actual micro skills, what it looks like and sounds like um, to listen to someone. So, yeah, we'll get to that. Um, and I think the big picture, last preview, the big picture. Um, I remember I, I met a student who took IPC 20 years ago, and he said, Professor Pauston, the only thing I remember from IPC, he said, and I think he was trying to give me a compliment. I don't know if it was what he intended. It didn't really come across that way. The only thing I remember. But he said, the only thing I remember was this idea, seek first to understand, then and only then to be understood. Seek first to understand. And so the next episode will kind of pull that apart and flesh that out and see what uh, kind of sense we can make of that because it's a pretty powerful concept, turns out. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if I had to think of one sentence or one thing to remember from IPC, that might be it. Yeah, so. I don't mind it being the main thing. It's just I'm reacting to that's the only thing yeah. <laughs> really <laughs> put my heart out for 30 straight <laughs> 75 minute yeah. sessions and that's because yeah. you remember. <laughs> but no, I, it, if uh, I had to say it, what is yeah. the most powerful single practical concept, I think there's no question. And I've even kind of thought recently, if a person finds communication to be really difficult, they just have struggled their whole life with it, where do you start? And I think this is where I'd say this is where you start to grow. Don't don't have it be about what I say and you know how witty or smooth or charming I can be with my words. It's let's let's put it right here. Be a listener. I mean, I feel like yeah, I think you could maybe in a more um rigorous curriculum you could have a whole course dedicated to listening and I'm sure you'd learn a lot uh, without of the things that yeah you would you'd learn a lot of things about how to speak in doing so I think you could probably it's almost like learning vicariously all of the things that you'd think you'd learn in like a communication class you could probably facilitate solely by focusing on listening without any question one of the theories of how we become Stronger communicators is just social learning theory, which just says you, you just got to be really present. And what the child picks up just by, as you say, just by observing and listening really closely. So I always say the the first thing I would say to a struggling communicator is just even, even beneath listening skills is the attitude of becoming truly, genuinely interested in people. Genuinely genuinely fascinated by people that you want to know what their story is and where they're from and how they came to be and think as they are that's just the first thing isn't it i mean this the humility of self-forgetting that puts your focus on the person you're with so yeah this is the potential the potential for communication study to be transformative i think it, it kind of lands right here in this spot how we learn to listen to people didn't uh Fred Rogers have a quote that was very like echoed that it was like I've never met a person who wasn't interesting. Oh, that's, in some way that's great. I didn't I didn't know that one. That's wonderful. I I don't know if that's an exact quote. Maybe I'll look that up. It, it um, does kind of ring a bell, but, but the, I'm glad you said that. It, yeah, yeah, I think there's something along. It, it might have been a different word other than interesting, but just the idea that there's I've never met a person who wasn't like important. Yeah, or had their own unique something that was valuable. And I think that was uh Yeah. Never met a, never met a person I couldn't yeah. learn something from. Never met a person that there isn't more going on than meets the eye. And I think that's yeah, I think that's brilliant. I think that's just a great, great um attitude to nurture in ourselves. 
Real good. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so I think we'll wrap up with. Uh, I think you you said you had a story. Oh, a specific story. Yeah, I'm not going to make this about uh, for listening. a dessert. I could try to make it about listening, but that would be artificial. But I, yeah, so We've yeah, got I'll plenty on that story. topic I, next time. <laughs> this will give our listeners insight into my life and my marriage. I so we bought a car, John. We bought a car a few weeks ago. Um, went to Luther Is it a Tesla Honda Luther Luther Honda, whatever Mankato. Um, it's a little HRV. So anyway, sweet car. So Connie did all kinds of research into how to how to buy a car and how to deal with salesmen and stuff. And she talked to a lot of people. And so she's all fired up. And so we're in the car on the way to Luther Honda, whatever. And she's telling me, okay, don't say this. And, you know, don't say that. And, and she finally, finally kind of says, you know what, don't say anything. And so I'm like... <laughs> I'm like, man, dude, I've been preparing for this role for my entire life. You know, I'm not going to say anything. It's perfect. But what was funny is then we got there and we're sitting with a guy named Chris in the little in the little booth and discussing the car we wanted. And I realized you can't just literally say nothing. You can't say nothing at all. So I, would, I was saying things like, you know, I never had a car that warmed up my backside before. I've never had one and kind of kind of cool. And so... And so I look at Connie, and she does this crazy thing. It's a whole new thing in her marriage, <laughs> unless I just never picked up on it before. But she kind of like shakes her head, you know, but only a millimeter or like half a millimeter. Just shakes her head, <laughs> just like a just a little. Can you try to picture it? Yeah, just like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was almost imperceptible. You could have missed it. And so, like I said, maybe she's been doing this her whole marriage, but I just never caught it before. <laughs> just. Caught on. Yeah, you know, and so like, God forbid, I should say something positive about the car. That's just going to totally ruin our position if I say I like the sunroof, you know. <laughs> but um, I was so compelled by that, I thought maybe I can make that happen more. You know, <laughs> what do I got to do? To <laughs> Turned out to be surprisingly easy to make that happen. But uh, so anyway, she was doing great. She it was like three times. She said, "Hey, Chris, can you meet us halfway?" You know, so one one was on the trade in of our Nissan. Can you meet us halfway? And oops, hit the microphone again. Sorry. Um, so she said for the third time, "Chris, can you meet us halfway?" And he's like, "You're killing me, man." And and but then she looked at me and said, "So so, Mark, if Chris meets us halfway, are you good with this deal?" And I'm like, "What is this now?" <laughs> you told me to say nothing. I what, what are you testing? I'm not me? prepared this? for this. So I, I was pretty sure that if I didn't answer the question, that was wrong. But I was equally sure that if I answered the question, I was going to get kicked so hard under the table. Uh, <laughs> so, it's like Kobayashi test or whatever. Oh, it's so funny. So it's finally, no all I could think of to do was to say, "Hey, Chris, can we just have a couple minutes?" You know. So so uh, Chris left the room and he's hardly even out of the room and he must have heard two people just falling over each other laughing <laughs> I just kind of let Connie in on the dilemma I was experiencing in that moment uh, I've never had more fun buying a car in my life don't don't say anything and then ask the question <laughs> oh gosh that was so funny but yeah it's a sweet little, oh, that's great. A sweet little ride four screen that's hunt. a great that's a great tactic actually to like, to go to a salesperson as a duo, I think is a very interesting. Uh, you could almost make like a sitcom oh, out totally. of that or something. Like, there's a great like, like the different things that you can like. Sales is a very interesting topic, uh, 
And, and so to like kind of, it's usually one person transacting with another person or like two organizations or something like that. But to have this like third party <laughs> as like a wingman to the, to the <laughs> right. sale as like a, like a, it's like, okay. The salesperson's like, well, can I get my guy in here too? And oh, we'll yeah, like, right. get the, and the full, uh, the stereotype. Yeah. And cause, cause she's the girl and I'm the guy. Yeah, Chris, are you okay selling the car for this deal? Would you be comfortable to <laughs> yeah. sell it at that price? <laughs> Well, they kind of already do play that game. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go talk to my manager. You know, this is really yeah. They, they, they do. You're killing me, but I'm gonna talk to my manager and see if I can maybe oh, just pull yeah. this off. And... Oh yeah. No, anyway, we'll get, she cut, well, yeah, she we'll cut several thousand off, that off the sticker price, and I think she did a great job. So that was so, it was nice. so much fun. Is it comfortable? Does it? Yeah. Do you like yeah, the sunroof? Genuinely. So comfortable. Got a <laughs> the sunroof. Sunroof and. <laughs> The best feature is when you put the right blinker on, it does puts a camera on that side of the car, and there's little oh. lines there in the in the in that little video screen that shows up. There's lines that show you when you got a car right behind you in your blind spot, or when you're one or two car lengths ahead of them. That's just really cool. Wow, cool for highway driving. So I'm, yeah. I mean, I think it's not too long before cars are pretty much just driving themselves. Yeah, it's, I think it's. I mean, that's a whole other conversation, but it's just the yeah. technology in these things now. It's like, I'm happy that my car turns on. Oh, totally. It, it just, it recently snowed. Uh, we had a, a blizzard like day or two before Christmas. I think the Monday before Tuesday, Monday or Tuesday before Christmas, there was a. Right. Oh uh, yeah. Huge. Blizzard. Huge. huge. And uh, the the next day. I remember turning my car on and it was it was struggling. <coughs> oh yeah. So yeah. it's a Ford and I think um I mean Ford's a great company. I've ridden in many solid Ford vehicles before, but I think my particular vehicle was before they figured out how to screw everything on tightly. It <laughs> rattles all over. I turn on the car and I literally was like I could probably charge people for like a massage just by having them sit in the passenger seat. It was just that, like when I would apply torque at a low RPM, it was just like, it was like vibrating the glasses on my face. It was, it was rough anyway. Yeah, um, but you'll remember that car fondly someday. You know, we had two, we had two cars that were just, oh, high mileage, excuse me. It's so nice to have a car we can kind of feel safe in. Yeah. Anyway, that's my story, John. Yeah, it gets. I like it. Do you have any dessert for us today, or should we? Pre- yeah, I guess. I mean, it's more of just like a. Oh, go ahead. I guess uh, I'll just do like a brief life update. I guess it's been a oh, while. Good. The whole pandemic and everything. Um, so I've been in Minneapolis doing mostly video production. During the pandemic, ended up helping out quite a few churches with um, live streaming, live recording, and just uh, helping them establish like a virtual presence, which I think became uh, very quickly uh, almost essential, I think, for ministry. Um, but now things are slowly starting to open up again. Jobs are starting to happen again. And so I'm getting back into the commercial space. And actually for the next month, I'm going to be in Los Angeles for most of January, actually leaving tomorrow. At, at this time, I'll be on an airplane towards the sunny Los Angeles to see palm trees and snow caps in the same view. And I'm very excited about it. We're going to make a movie, might do a few jobs, and then we'll be back making more of the Where Two or Three podcast. Oh, that's amazing. Your career is really taking off, it sounds like. 
yeah, it's a, it's very, yeah, it's been an interesting year for sure. And like, I guess production is, is just even one aspect of like the things that I'm doing and being involved in doing some stuff with code and technology and helping the deaf and hard of hearing communities. So we'll, uh, yeah, there's quite a, quite a lot of exciting stuff happening and I'm, I'm excited for 2021. I don't know about the rest of you, but yeah. I'm very excited for, for 2021. Do you, do you want to just spend uh, two sentences on the technology on the on the deaf community because that's so it's incredible no one's ever thought of it before to me yeah so the idea is that I, I ended up for my church we we have a significant deaf and hard of hearing um, membership and so we provide uh, ASL accessibility for them in all of our videos and so the process is actually a little bit convoluted in that like we had to pre-record something. I have to compile that video, send it to an interpreter because all this is happening remotely. They'll make the interpretation and then the interpreted content gets sent back to me. And then I have to include that into the final video and kind of, it, it just takes a lot longer. And my thought was like, why can't I just have, why can't you just toggle interpreted content the same way that you toggle like closed captions? Why can't I have closed sign language? And there's nothing for this. So I decided to make it. And so that's the that's the idea. That's the technology. And then the business that we'll develop out of that is probably just providing content for that. So working with a couple, I think the National Association for the Deaf might have a few contacts at Google. We can see if we can get that sort of technology implemented into the actual system, the actual viewing system of YouTube or other video content providers. And then, and then, yeah, I think it'll be great. I think, um, a lot of the internet right now to the deaf and hard of hearing community is like a building that doesn't have handicap accessibility to someone mm -hmm. who's confined to a wheelchair. So it'll be great to, to start to make some ramps and start giving people options for, you know, the type of content that they need or want. So, okay. So, let me get this straight. So, a uh, hard of hard this of hearing person no, 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 <laughs> can be watching a video, and they can toggle on a little inset screen of someone signing. Is that correct? Yep. So, yep. So, if there's content, interpreted content available for the video that you're watching, mm -hmm. um, a button appears with a universal sign language symbol. It's kind of like okay on your hands, but like a yin yang sort of okay symbol. I guess I don't mm -hmm. know. You can look it up. Um, that's, that will appear and you can press that and a little box will show up with the interpreted content. So it's kind of like a little in the lower right-hand corner, or you can probably, you'll be able to move it around wherever or, um, make it larger, or you'll kind of like have both videos next to each other, but it'll just be able to, you'll be able to see it and you'll, yeah. It sounds wonderful. Everything we say about, uh, the Christian doctrine of vocation is coming to mind, you know, um, Perceiving the need of a neighbor and meeting that need—that's just—that's amazing. Yeah, that's amazing. yeah. It's a it's a real a real blessing. So I, I guess I stuck with the idea a lot longer than I would have. Um, mm -hmm. Had some a coach, and a few other people who were very uh, supportive in keeping me keeping me involved. So I'm gonna keep pushing for it and see what happens. Okay, great, John. Shall we? Uh, it, um, shall we wrap this? Rap. Or were you thinking oh. we would? <laughs> <laughs>
So if I'm hearing you correctly, you want to end the episode here. <laughs> oh, we're still we're still on. Yeah. Yeah. You didn't hit stop yet. Yeah. Okay, I'm gonna stop now. Okay. Guys, it's been great. We'll see you next time. <laughs>